Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next hunt. Try Onyx Hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new Elite membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Okay, uh, to got to bring people up to speed on what we were just talking about before Phil hit the power button. What button do you hit over there, Phil? Uh, well, there are several. Uh, I do have to hit power first. That's the yeah. first step. Step one. Um, and then I arm the board for recording. Mm-hmm. Turns on a red light. And then I hit a play button that actually starts the recording. Hmm. Yeah. Before you did all that, Spencer pointed out that Phil means, like, the name Phil. So all the Phil's in the world. Philip. Means horse lover? Yeah, well, well Phil Like and platonically I, or like, uh, you know? <laughs> Equus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Phil and I were having a deep conversation about Phil, the name over here. Because my my brother um, was the fifth Phil in our family. My dad was the fourth. My nephew is the sixth Phil. So I was asking so Phil. So they didn't if, name you Phil? No. Why not? Because my older brother is eight years, came eight years oh, before Oh, he me. got the name. He got the name. That's right. He's Philip the... He'd be the fifth, I believe. My nephew is the sixth. So I was asking... I'll oh, yeah, Phil. that makes sense. So that brother had a kid. Correct. I'm with you now. My was, nephew. Yeah, I was getting confused. Our Phil, I'm I was asking if he's a 1L or a 2L Phil. What what does he feel like to you? 1L or 2L? I got it wrong. God, let me think. <laughs> Where were you born? Vancouver, Washington. Two L's. And one L. One L. Really? Yeah. yeah. Phil felt like a two L to me. I thought he was a two L guy. What? I'm okay. 
I'm gonna, this, if this I had a kid, I'd name him Phil, but I'd be <laughs> F-I-L-L. Just a mess of people. Yeah, sure. What? Two L's? Why? Like, because Philippe. You, because which, you, one, which one sounds more like Philippe? Philippe. Well, that's a, that, that's a 2PE situation. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. This is strictly coming from my personal experience with Phil's, and you're different than those Phil's. Gotcha. So I was, I was like, your name has to be spelled different. Okay. It tracks. But the horse, the horse lover thing um, is derived from the Greek word philippos, which means horse loving or fond of horses. Fondling horses? No, no, no. <laughs> fond of horses. I'm with you. I got my eye on you, Phil. <laughs> Well, I, I gotta say, I don't, I don't live up to the name. My parents really messed up because I, I, I have no, I have you no. You hate horses. Well, no, I don't. I hate's a strong word. I have no, I have no like attra- attractions. There. Okay, I'm gonna stop talking. You're not drawn to horses. I'm not drawn to horses. I don't have an attachment to horses. I didn't grow up with like farm animals or anything like that. So. And I, I got was, a lot of admiration for people that um, know a lot about horses because it's one of those things where, like, my sister-in-law, they have a, a immense herd of horses where she lives, and. When she looks at a like I look at a horse, I just see, I don't know, a horse. She looks at a horse, she sees like not only the history of that animal, but like the history of its mother. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like all of its like neuroses and past injuries and what it's been eating. It's just like it's a ama- you could never learn it all. Like you, ha- I think it's one of those things you have to be brought up around. Mm-hmm. I sat next to a girl in middle school who wore nothing but like horse. Just sweaters and was just spent, would spend her days drawing horses all day long. I never understood it. I, like, there's a thing with horses. Yeah, I, I, I bet you, I bet you, she had long hair and a ponytail. Y- yeah, uh-huh. yeah. The, the yep. I find it's a weird thing that happens. My sister in law doesn't do this, but I find a lot of uh, women who are very interested in horses wind up having very long hair and a ponytail, as though they were trying to replicate the horse's tail. Mm. I don't know if they even realize this. Ponytail. Yeah. I don't know if I'd like to start asking people if they realize this. Uh, joined today by Nels Johnson. We're going to be talking to a bunch later on. He's the North American Energy Program Director at the Nature Conservancy. So, hello, Nels. Hello, Steve. So, we, we found you because you wrote into us uh, offering some clarifications mm. and corrections. No, no, someone who knows him. Someone who knows you Offered, suggested. Yep, oh, I thought yep. you wrote in being Nels like, stop mom. fretting about. <laughs> no, no. He is not a self-promoter. We, I, well, we I wouldn't hold it against you. So, so who, who oh, it doesn't matter. It, but but how, did we, how did we track down? Because we've been yeah. talking a little bit about wind farms and how I don't like them. There's, a, uh, I guess, a, a, a listener out there in our community who has been, you know, who's heard us touch on this conversation And they topic. said, you know who you ought to talk yep, to. exactly. And he's right there, so. And then we reached out to you and you said yes? Uh, well, yeah, there was a little arm twisting involved, but yeah, no, I'm <laughs> happy so you, to do it. So you're going to answer all of our questions about whether or not the planet will soon be covered in windmills, wind turbines. Uh, well, yeah, that and a few other things. And all the birds will be dead. Yeah, and uh, the squirrels will be doing great, though. Because <laughs> they can't uh, climb up those slick uh, turbine shafts. We'll get to all safe. that in a minute. That's going to be interesting, because I got, I got, I've been doing a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of fretting. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I'll point this out, but we don't even need to discuss it yet. There's a feller that's been making some waves. Um, uh, he's a congressman. Ken Zenger? Ken Zenger? Ken Zenger? Kinziger, yeah. 
I just signed up for his email newsletter. So he's been making a lot of waves by being um, not really liking the direction of the Republican Party. Um, and I've been kind of interested in what he's got to say. And I was looking at his Twitter feed and he was saying, uh, let's make sure to keep nuclear in the mix. So we'll talk about that. We will. That's my thing, man. I want to end it on this. That's my thing. It's good. You, I, I hope you can talk me out of it, but I don't think you can. I don't even know if you're interested in talking me out of it. Uh, no. Okay. Um, all but, right, but, but, but oh, we go got to be go realistic about when and how that happens, right? So that's, that's what the conversation Yeah, I don't want to get mired in those kind of <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty simple. I just want to make sure they're doing it and doing it now. <laughs> you're either pro-energy or you're anti-nature. Like, which is it? <laughs> um, okay, we've got a handful of things. H- hang tight, Nels. Feel free to, if something strikes your fancy, feel free to speak up. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, now, I, I, we happen to be sitting in Montana right now, and I want to talk about some bills that are up, some rule changes that are up. And I wouldn't talk about them if I didn't think that they uh, weren't kind of like more broadly applicable. Like it brings up interesting subjects that I think that anyone who's interested in uh, hunting and fishing rules and whatnot, legislation, right? They don't need to be here to appreciate the complexity and relevance of these questions. Do you feel like I'm selling this well, Cal? Yeah, absolutely. One, one thing that's up right now, SB 111. It's good they went with SB and not BS 111. <laughs> but I think BS 111 would have been better. I'd be curious to hear Spencer's take on this. They want to legalize crossbow hunting. They want to legalize, not that it's illegal. They want to make it so you can hunt with a crossbow during archery season. Right now, specifically for uh, impaired hunters, handicapped hunters. That's it. That's it. That's what I thought, but then someone told me it was more complicated than that. Well. I think someone gave me the old slippery slope argument. That is, that's, that's our, that's our argument that we always stand on, right? It's like. Yeah, but I'm a slippery slope guy. I think that there is, in fact, a slippery slope in the world. And people fall down the slippery... Like, I'm a big believer in slippery slopes. So SB111 is is just that. So it would uh, make crossbows legal for those who apply for a handicapped validation. Mm Mm-hmm. To hunt during the the season, and they can hunt with that crossbow during the archery season. Right now, crossbows are legal to hunt with in the state of Montana, as long as you use them during the firearm season. Hmm. Hmm. How are they? Uh, I didn't know. Like I, I I know this from various text messages and stuff that I got that didn't get into any level of detail. Is just expressing horror. Text messages expressing like. What are the what will happen next? Yes. Yeah, so where is the world headed? So so explain the the what what is caught as the, the handicapped like to, 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 to what degree? So what this says is that it's uh, discriminatory, right? So right now that you can use a device that holds a traditional bow, which you know traditional. I'm I'm encompassing really compound bows. 
or if you could figure a device out for a recurve or a longbow that would hold that bow back at full draw with an arrow in it. And that would be legal for uh, handicap hunters to use. Right now it is. Right now. But you can't turn it sideways. But you can't turn it horizontal. <laughs> um, hmm. And so this, basically, if folks can't figure out how to use that, then they, they can't hunt during archery season. However, they can use a crossbow if that is, uh, you know, something that they can can work, you know, something that they can use effectively. They can use that during rifle season, not archery season. Um, what, like, Montana traditional bow hunters are saying is this is how crossbow bows become legal during archery season and the issue there is we're going to see uh, much higher success rates which in turn is going to shorten our archery season altogether because archery is going to be way too effective mm-hmm. um and then again there's the discrimination side of this too it's like if this is keeping handicapped hunters out of archery season then we need to address that and make sure that handicap hunters are included in archery season if they are capable. The state code basically says that um, as long, like we can adapt anything to be as inclusive as possible as long as it doesn't change the essence of what that thing is. Yeah. Um, the interesting parts here are like, I have been around, I've, I've guided some crossbow hunts for uh, folks who were able to use them under this same pretense. Um, In what state? Colorado. Oh, okay. And it was, for me being somebody who's not familiar with a crossbow, it was almost a two-person job to load the crossbow. Um, and that handicapped hunter was not capable of loading that thing on their own. Mm-hmm. They were very effective with it uh, to shoot, but it wasn't a, a one-person job to load the thing. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of different crossbows out there, but um, this kind of seems like, a, oh, if we just add crossbows, then everybody's going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like if you can't use the thing that uh, holds your bow back at full draw, I don't think there's anything that necessarily says crossbows are going to fix that. Yeah, issue and then there's that probably people that would still be incapable of shooting a crossbow. Yeah, absolutely. But could shoot a firearm. Yes, for sure. Uh, a very near and dear uh, person to me was sharing with me that they really hope this does not pass. They don't want to see crossbows. Their argument was that this is like the playbook from the crossbow industry is that it always starts with this, and then pretty soon it's everybody. But he said that if they do make crossbows legal, he will start to hunt with one because it'll, it's the arms race. Oh, very interesting. Uh, I, I sure, like, I, I, can't, I don't have the level of expertise about this to, to really have an opinion about it, but if it was just generally to make it that you could hunt during archery season with crossbows, I would point out there's all kinds of times to hunt with crossbows. Hunt with a crossbow during rifle season. 
And and that was like, a great like, point. Like it's not like you can't use it. You can use it for six damn weeks. Um, there was a point made uh, during the hearing for this that uh, if you want to take advantage of shoulder season hunts, uh, bird hunting opportunities, there's. I'm gonna have to dig into. You can use it for spring bear. Three hundred days. Of crossbow hunting? Of crossbow hunting currently available. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. Okay, here's one. Uh, here's another bill that's up. And this is an interesting one. So it's hard as hell, hard as hell to draw. It doesn't matter where you are uh, in the West. It's hard to draw a moose, sheep, or goat tag in the West, outside, uh, you know, outside of Alaska, right? So you can apply your whole life and never get one. I've been. A, I just drew a mountain goat. For instance, I just drew a mountain goat tag after twenty six years of applying. I drew a mountain goat tag in the state of Montana. It took me twenty six years. I don't know how many they started the bonus point system somewhere in the middle of my application period. Your bonus points are squared. So when I learned multiplication as a youngster, we only got up to twelve times twelve, and then we quit for some reason. I don't know why. We never got into what happens when you times 13 by something. So I still don't know. But if you had 12 bonus points, your name's in the hat 144 times. And I and I finally drew a mountain goat tag. Now I have to take off. Well, you got to quit. You got to lay low for five years or seven years? Seven years, I think. Before yeah. you can apply again. Before you can even apply. Yeah. But I have friends who... Because you were successful, that would be an important part of this. I had friends who drew mountain goat, like applied, drew mountain goat tag, laid low for all the years, started applying again, drew a second one, right? Which I feel is like a great feat. It's a great triumph. There's a bill that would make it that when you draw, and some states have this already, that once you draw a moose, sheep, or goat tag... I think it's if you're successful. If you're successful on the hunt. So successful drawing and then successful slapping that tag on a harvested animal. You are done for life. You can never get back in the mix. Is it individually per animal or yeah. is it within No, that you're not group? done with everything. You're done with that one. Okay. What states have this? Idaho. Yeah, Idaho has once-in-a-lifetime stuff. There's a bunch. There's a handful. Like, uh, New Mexico has some once-in-a-lifetime and Thanks. it's important to note too, like if you're you can apply for a cow moose, you know immediately. You can, yeah. Or you know, so there's there's you got two shots at hunting each animal. Just one's gonna be the animal with the more impressive headgear. Now this rule, I was sharing. Cal and I were talking about this on the phone. This rule is one of those rules where everybody's opinion. I'm right down to whoever wrote this thing up. Everybody's, I guarantee whoever wrote this up hasn't drawn moose sheep or goat tag. Guaranteed. And they're pissed. Because their cousin, he's drawn two. I've never drawn one. Yep. This is not fair. Aww. Like, I guarantee. You should look into that, Karen. Oh, if, if you... Is the person that drew this up pissed? <laughs> there's no way they're sitting on... There's no way they drew all these and they're trying to draw them again. No way. Well, I wonder no how way. many uh, how many folks who have 
applied, what percentage of the total, I don't know, per year over the past, I don't know, five years, 10 years, if we figure out some kind of percentage uh, of those who have drawn who have drawn twice and been successful. Yeah, like what would it really do again? to this person? If they were out of the mix, what would it really do to the guy that drew this up, this bill? Right. I, what would it really do for his odds? I mean, are we talking about three people out of that like is, thousands? That is or the what? point. And <laughs> the, the pro-con argument in the debate for House Bill 202 is it will increase people's odds who have not drawn yet. Right. And the con or the, the, yeah, the con why this bill shouldn't exist is, not is really. this will not <laughs> increase people's odds. <laughs> I don't like it for this reason, because did I ever tell you about my civics teacher in ninth grade, Al DeYoung? Al DeYoung, uh, he was he was a he would do parody, but none of us were old enough or smart enough to know he was doing parody. <laughs> <clears throat> Al DeYoung taught government through the lens he role played. We now know he role played as a guy who would say, and remember. I'm concerned only with what affects, and you point to himself, Al DeYoung. And he would be like, there was, he was supposed to take everyone down to register him to vote. He's like, there's no way I would take you people down to register to vote. Why would I dilute my vote? I don't want you idiots voting. You know? Oh, I love it. So that was his shtick. Um, but it stuck with me. And like a rule like this, I don't like it because what if they made it retroactive? And I'm out of the run on a mountain goat. Or I'm not, I'm old, but I'm not totally old. I could draw a sheep tag next year. I would hate to learn that I couldn't get back in the running in five years. Why not? Because your bro's got to, right? Or- Listen, that dude. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> Is it because Steve and his brother are competing? No. I just, like, I don't like it, and I don't like it only, I don't like it only for what it would mean for me. Or is it the slippery slope problem? You know, then it's going to be white-tailed deer, and then it's going to be squirrels. And, you know, you yep, get one, one squirrel, squirrel, and it's and you're done. done. <laughs> that is interesting, honestly. I haven't thought about it that way. But yep. uh, One good, you know. Speaking from the Idaho standpoint, right? It's kind of uh, could be a BS bill because already uh, there is a governor's tag, which if you love hunting sheep so much, why don't you just buy the governor's tag? For I think it went for four forty. Yeah, last year four hundred forty. That's not four hundred forty dollars, kids. <laughs> right? Uh, State of Idaho is that once in a lifetime? Once in a lifetime tag, unless. <laughs> you want to get in the governor's auction and buy the tag every year. Yeah. So you can hunt you can hunt sheep in perpetuity. It's kind of a bunch of crap. Isn't here's, this, here's, a, oh, go isn't ahead, this a question of statistics? Actually, yeah, I think it's symbolic. It I like think it's symbolic. Str- flat statistics. So uh, let's say, you know, after you're, what, waiting seven years, you apply again. Isn't it? If a thousand people apply one year, and two thousand people apply the next, whether Steve is in the running during that a thousand people or not, isn't it just based on the total number of people who have applied that year? Yeah, right, but that, the, that, that's what you base on. Is know, this, this is meant to be vindictive because even when that dude sits, <laughs> even when that dude sits out seven years, okay, he's coming in with zero points. 
He's got to rebuild his whole collection of points. Right, okay. He's like inconsequential. It's it's a way to punish the lucky people. Oh, right. That's right. It's not one-to-one. There's it's a, like they're, 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 yeah, they're right, against lucky right, people. And right. so is the winning argument... It's a war on lucky people. <laughs> if it doesn't matter, then why not get rid of them? Or is the winning argument is... Every little bit counts, you know? So, like, when you look, especially as a non-resident, if you look at your draw odds of getting, like, a premier sheep tag, it can be, like, 0.015% some places, 0.05%. And it's like, so if that 0.05% is back in the pool, does does it really affect your odds of drawing? Oh, yeah, because when you get to looking at the odds on draw tags... You know, you could see a draw tag is 0.5% chance of drawing, or it's uh, another tag is 1% chance of drawing. There's something that happens in your head. Like, you don't view it being twice as likely to draw the one. You just view it all as being shitty. Yes. You just view it like, dah, that ain't ever going to happen. So this goes directly into the next bill, uh, which is our bonus points bill, which is another great topic. And yeah. will you read the number on that? My now computer. this one, okay, HB120. This one strikes to my core. This one, I would go so far. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I would storm the state capitol building while they were tallying the votes. I wouldn't go that far. Oh, Steve. <laughs> I, would, I don't know if that would go He's that far. He's a passionate far. man, Corinne. <laughs> I'm not saying I would take it that far. But I've already bought my kids a bunch of bonus points. You've invested in their future. <laughs> Listen, I've invested in my future. Dividends. No, I've invested in my future because I think it's fun to go hunt moose, sheep, and goat. So my kids, my four-year-old, when he, no, he's, how old is he now? He's six. He's already sitting on three bonus points. When he turns 12, he'll be going into the draw with nine points. Do you at and all now they're f- trying to rob this from me. Do you f- at all feel partially responsible for Point creep. inspiring this bill? No, because you've talked about this so many times. Yeah, listen, you got to hate the hate the game, not the player, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll tell you <laughs> I'm right dead now. Dead set against this thing. Um, these, the, yeah, these are folks coming in uh, against the the you know. As the bill is written, this is not the way the game is supposed to be played. So the kids who have not invested in hunting in the state of Montana mm-hmm. are coming in as if they have invested for what eight, nine, ten years, right? But they're they're paying they're paying money to the state agency and drawing nothing in return. It's a money. Th- listen, let's be frank. Hold on, have There's we, have we said what bonus- this bill is yet? Okay, have we talked about it? Oh, okay, <laughs> let, let, hear me out, hear Thanks. me out. I'll try to explain it real okay. quick. Okay. HB 120. Okay, you gonna do it? Please. Please? But I think you gotta talk about... A bill for an act entitled, an act allowing only persons eligible to hunt to apply for bonus points, which would be an amendment of Montana Code's annotated section 87-2-117. Okay, so in this state, a kid can start legally hunting at 10 with a mentor, um, and they can only hunt on over-the-counter tags. They can A kid, a 10-year-old cannot try to draw a limited draw permit. 
you have to be 12 to try to draw a limited draw permit. It would stand to reason. It would make most sense that you, at that point you can start applying and, and accruing bonus points. But through some weird like thing that I don't even think is that rational, but I exploit it. All of a sudden they made it that your kids could start, that a dad could or mom, whatever the hell, could start stocking up bonus points for their kids by just going down and buying them over the counter. So I was like, that's really kind of strange and almost like, you know, I almost don't even like it. But again, hate the game, not the player. I went down and got my kids' little ALS numbers that they don't even need and started buying them points. How much is a point? I don't know. But when it's all said and done, I can't remember on each, but when it's all said and done, I walk out of there dinged by a few hundred bucks. Because I buy them points for everything. All of them. Okay. So all three of them get all available points. Right. And they don't even know this. Well, no, I kind of explained it. The deal being, I told them, if you don't bring me, if you draw one of these things and don't bring me with you, I want all this money back. I have told them that. Kind of like investing. Yeah, I'm like, dude, this is like me going on the hunt. If you decide to go like with your buddies at school or something, (laughs) you're going to be getting an invoice. For all my point money back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So the bonus point system, in theory, is set up as a, here is a way to reward people who are invested in the system, right? By extending it to people who are not invested in the system and giving them a, a conceivably very large leg up, depending on, you know, changes in the in the state, um, it violates the intention of the bill, the original bill, um, would be my perspective. Now, I, I will also let you in on a little more perspective of mine own. I have a niece and a nephew at this point, right? You buying them points? I don't buy them anything. Is it because you're a tight ass or because you don't agree <laughs> with this? What I do is I opened up a life insurance policy uh, for each of them. On based on my own life, and they will get cash, but also have to deal with my death. That is going to be like their only gift from <laughs> old Uncle Cal. Like they're going to have to bury your carcass. Yeah. Why did you bring my kids that? Um, when you have your own nephews and stuff, was it just expediency why you brought my kids? The no, they're getting a bunch of okay. stuff too. Yeah. Um, the and the, I think this is the way to go, right? Because like you and I have a, oh, a you long think they lasting screw, friendship. They should screw me over. You rob <laughs> points from the mouth but, of my babies. This, this is, this <laughs> is you, like Karen's living vicariously uh, through their children. Have, have turned into it. a pretty decent human being. And one of those things that has made you a pretty decent human being is like paying your way through school. Uh, right? Like, uh, oh, God, let me tell you this sob story about going to state school, trapping my way through until I could get into the University of Montana, becoming a big swinging dick writer. (laughs) Right? Uh, That's character building. Right? Okay. Uh, You are robbing your children of knowing the pain of Of really having having to... not having many points. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And therefore, you're you're putting their, uh, their, their lives at risk of becoming decent humans. You know, these bills, oh, I want to move on here, but these bills are a real one-two punch to my children. Because imagine <laughs> that 
uh, I do well, like I do all this, and then one of them draws a tag, and they're not even they're like twelve years old, right? And they don't even know what the hell's going on. They don't even know how cool it is. And then they can't ever draw another one when they're a grown up and would appreciate it. Exactly. It's a buyer beware. It's a war on children. I'm I'm real hung up on this life insurance. Caveat emptor. (laughs) So do your nieces and nephews know this? Like, do you think they root for your death a little bit? Well, the niece the 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 blood is a little thin by that point. I've got shirts older than my niece. Got, I got shirts older than my nephew. Blood uh, gets a little thin down by the niece level. They might be kind of being like, so he's like, so you tell me if Cal dies. Right. <laughs> exactly. And they're like, and I'm currently not getting any birthday or Christmas presents. But they know about this. Uh, the sister knows about yeah. this. They're like, so where's this Cal guy live? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I also want to get to this next one, which is super interesting. It's just going to be a quick beat which is, uh, what's the next one on the list with the, uh, it eliminates the fishing game's ability to have special draw tags in units that are over objective. Yeah, but you're skipping one that I want to understand a little bit better real quick. Okay. We got to hustle though. Yeah. Six, okay. They, I think we're going like going back in time. So there's another thing, non-resident licenses, okay? Yes. Non-resident license state. SB143. They want to make it the outfitters are guaranteed a significant percentage that would mean that people that would normally, like a non-resident hunter that would normally come to a state to just do a DIY hunt, um, that they funnel more of that business to outfitters and make it be that that they have these outfitter specific permits. Yes. So, so it would favor individuals who are going to hire an outfitter over individuals who are going to to freelance it. Yes. And and it does the the truest part of that is this will favor those going with who have made the choice to go with an outfitter. And you have to make the choice earlier in the season than the general draw, the general non-resident draw. So um basically it's kind of poised as a if you're willing to commit early, and at this this point, the uh, revised version of SB 143, um, 40% of those non-residents who are willing to commit to hunting with an outfitter for uh, the two combination tags that are available in the state of Montana for non-residents and willing to spend an additional $300 on the application process per application, they will be guaranteed a tag up until that threshold of 40% of the non-resident tags is met. Uh, An interesting part of this, so I I had a great conversation with the head of Montana Outfitters Outfitters and Guides Association, MOGA, uh, Mac Menard, uh, super nice guy. And... uh, the stated intention of SB 143 is to take care of the current uh, customer base for outfitters and guides in the state of Montana. And they're saying that right now it's about 40% of non-residents already choose to hunt with an outfitter and guide. Um, However, the amended version here has a, uh, 10% 
swing. So it could go up to 50%. And that's based on uh, the number of applications that don't come in under the outfitters bill uh, from the previous season. So if 45% choose to apply, only 40% are guaranteed tags. Well, next year that can be increased to 45% up to 50%. Um, sounds a little complicated the way I'm saying it, but it's, it's pretty darn simple. Um, and you know, the, the cleanest opposition to this bill is why the hell should folks who are willing to pay more be guaranteed a tag? hundred percent. Sounds like it, uh, you know, privilege. Um, and the counter argument to that would, is an economic one. So the University of Montana has an ongoing survey. And through this ongoing survey, it's a recreation-based survey, they've determined that out of the $3.3 billion that recreation brings into the state of Montana, outfitted recreation, which is a, a much larger umbrella than, than hunting, which is what we're thinking of right now. So it'd be hunting, fishing, it would more than likely be your sister-in-law's outfit as well. Um, yeah. You know, guided horseback rides. Rafting. There's guided, there's rafting, yeah. there's sled dog runs, all sorts of things. Um, I even have a buddy who takes people on nature walks. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that recreation amounts to about 10%. So a bitty, you know, big, big chunk of change for the state of Montana. And they found that folks willing to go with an outfitter outspend uh, non-outfitted recreators in the state of Montana by five to one. Sure. Um, keep like this is one study. Uh, I, everybody I've talked to on this is like, how the heck does that make sense? Uh, but I think when you start thinking about the gamut of outfitted experiences in the in the state, um, there's definitely some folks spending a lot of money compared to folks who are you know throwing the kids in the old family truckster and coming out to the state of Montana. So. There's a theme developing here of the haves versus the have-nots. Yep. Which is like the greatest argument of all time, yep. right? Yeah. yeah. Hey, we got a note from a guy. You remember how we had a guy write in that uh, he was hunting? He listened to our podcast with Adam Lazara, who uh, helped advise and, and work on our medical section in the Mediator Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival, which is available now on Amazon, New York Times bestseller. Um, that guy talked all about tourniquets. And a guy wrote in that he, his dad got shot in the arm hunting and he used a tourniquet to save him. Another guy wrote in, says, I would have never thought about tourniquet applying. Driving with his kids, comes across a car crash. Oh, biker. Biker's in the middle of the road. Compound fracture, lower left leg, bleeding profusely. The guy says he was not wearing a belt, but thought about the episode we had. And got a belt off a bystander and threw a tourniquet on the guy. Stopped the bleeding. Took 10 minutes for the ambulance to get there. Saved his life. Uh, That is episode 192, Bleeding Out. In case you yeah, that was the, that was the name of the episode, bleeding out. Yep. That's right. <laughs> Feel you like know, returning to and in it. this case, he did not bleed out. <laughs> the proper thing to do when you go to administer care, right, is to establish who you are. So I'd be like Stephen, hey, or you know, sir, ma'am, you. Yep. I would be like, I'm here on behalf of Doctor Adam Lazaro. 
<laughs> right. And so I'm just dying to know like what the bedside manner was. Now, sir, Alan's I see your angels. legs bleeding out. I have a, a belt here, and I've listened to a podcast. I've been listening to this here podcast. Stand, stand back. It's called Meat Eater. Everybody, everybody stand uh, back. I heard the podcast. No need to call for help. Spencer, a guy wrote in about the Real Foot Lake deal, um, which we covered extensively. But he talked about his grandpa. He had a grandpa named Papa Duck. And Papa Duck uh, was a guide on a duck club in Utah. And the duck club had these blinds out in a management unit. And they would bring in clients by airboat and drop them off to hunt these blinds. But apparently the like the blinds were there, but the duck club couldn't actually prohibit dudes from using the blinds. So like they built the blinds, but they couldn't do away with the public aspect. And he says, one day Gramps rolls in, there's a guy in a blind. They get in a fight. And he ties a rope off to the blind and gets so mad, he ties a rope to the blind and ties it off to his airboat and tries to pull the blind over. Get in a big fight. The blind tips over. Actually, the, the, the hunter tries to shoot the rope. Okay, tries to shoot the rope clean, gets injured. The sheriff's called and Papa Duck, the, Papa Duck thinking that the guy will get, I don't know how, he thinks that the guy will get in trouble. The sheriff comes and, and gives a citation to Papa Duck for harassment. And he ends the note by saying, my grandpa was later kicked out of the duck club for reasons I'm not sure about. <laughs> I was real impressed with this guy's honesty. <laughs> oh yeah, turning like uh, grandpa. <laughs> typically, yeah, he's turning his own grandpa in. Yeah, typically grandparents have like some level of divinity that yes. grandchildren hold them to. No, like, he's, they he's like, you want to hear about off. a real asshole? Yeah, this was great. <laughs> My grandpa. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years, you get one of these knives up and open it. It is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal.
OnX Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Before we get into our renewable energy here, speaking of uh, talking about uh, hunter harassment. Now, it's a many, I don't know how many states, I wish I knew this off the top of my head. A lot of states, most states, I think, have hunter harassment laws. You know, Jeremiah Johnson won Bear Claw, Chris Clapp. Is it clap? That's an STD, isn't it? Or clap? <laughs> Clack? Clap? Something. Lap? Bear Claw, Chris Clap. Played by the dude who used to play uh, the judge in Hardcastle and McCormick. Remember that? It was a guy on like, anyhow. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> uh, can you look that up, Spencer? Is it lap or clap? Anyhow, in Jeremiah Lapp. Johnson. L-A-P-P. Okay. In Jeremiah Johnson, he's out fiddling around in the mountains trying to make it as a mountain man and eventually gets a good hollering at from an old, seasoned, grizzled mountain man who accuses him of, of molesting his hunt. You've been molesting my hunt. And it's illegal to molest someone's hunt in virtually all states. Like if someone's doing like a lawful activity, like they're lawfully hunting, lawfully trapping, lawfully fishing, and someone comes out to screw with them, it's against the law. But we got an interesting note from a guy who is in a dispute with some people over his beaver trapping activities. And it's gotten heated. And right now, joining us remotely from Michigan, my home state, the beaver trap in country of Michigan is uh, Josh Hagen. I want to ask him some questions about his uh, his experience here with, with in this case, uh, beaver trapper intimidation, trapping intimidation. Now, jo- in the interest of time, Josh, I want to run through kind of the high-level particulars. And then you correct me uh, if I screw some part up. Okay, sounds good. So you or your buddy owns property on some lake My buddy Michigan. does. Your buddy owns property on a lake in Michigan. There's a big beaver colony 
on the lake or the beaver lodge. Yeah. You guys go out and string a little steel and start catching some beavers. Yep. And then people start doing what to you? Or like they start doing, like people around the lake respond to this by how? By uh, uh, basically messing with our traps, breaking our sticks uh, that our traps are set in. They wrote us a little note uh, one of the times, kind of told us, broke, broke the sticks and pulled basically the trap out of the water. Wrote us a little note, said no more in the snow right next to the, uh, to the trap. And then the fourth and final time, threw maybe a 10, 15 pound rock, a little smaller than a volleyball, threw it in the hole, set the trap off, and actually the rock got jammed and stuck in the trap. And you put out some trail cams then? Yeah, yep. So after, after the rock incident, we put some trail cams out to try and catch them because uh, we had no idea who was doing it. We had a, a little bit of an idea maybe who, but no hard evidence. So we threw some trail cameras out, and within 24 hours, probably got uh, three guys walking out to our traps, kind of looking at them. But they didn't, they didn't mess with the traps. They just kind of hung out there and looked at the traps for a couple minutes. And do you feel that they knew you had the trail cam set up? Yeah, yeah. One of the pictures he actually pointed at my trail camera. So we set up two. We set up a cellular trail camera, kind of off, hidden a little bit. And then we put a dummy camera right over the hole. Our thought was maybe keep their attention on the dummy camera and then we'll we'll maybe get who's doing this on the other camera. Yeah. And what's their what's your best understanding of what their gripe is? That they they like watching, they they enjoy watching the beavers in the lake. And they feel that these beavers should be off, off limits. They feel that no one should be able to mess with these beavers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's what we believe their gripe is. We are in October. We kind of ran out there to do some recon of the beaver, beaver den and um, ran into a few of the neighbors who clearly didn't want us messing with the beaver den. So had a couple conversations back in October with a few of the, the neighbors back there. How has it been like when you called up fish and game? Uh, to say, hey, we got this problem going on. What has been their sort of, uh, what has been their attitude about it? Like, have they suggested that, why don't you just go and kind of go somewhere else and try to avoid friction? Actually, we actually, when we got a hold of them, we had our, our traps pulled. Just, we, we kind of misunderstood one of the, the rules of checking the traps every 24 hours. So she actually told us that we were, in our right, and that day, go put the beaver traps back out there. Hmm. Like, encourage you to keep at it. Yep. Yeah, she encouraged, uh, told us, like, hey, if you run into any more problems, give me a call, and I'll come out, and we'll come up with a game plan. Huh. Now, this is what kind of the main thing I'm curious about with this. A lot of, like, a lot of times you go out, people want to go out and, and do stuff outside, like hunt and fish or, or trap in this case, because, uh, like, um some level of quietness, you know, of nature, like solitude. You picture this particularly being kind of a solitary activity in some way. Yeah, absolutely. But all of a sudden you're like mired in this dispute with like a neighborhood HOA. Yes. Uh, Did you feel compelled to keep at it because you were interested in sort of like defending your rights or did it still stay fun to do it, you know? Or did it become like not fun, but you didn't want to give up? The terrorists win, so to speak. (laughs) 
say a little bit of both. Uh, it was still fun, but then the other part was kind of like, well, we don't want these these people to you know to beat us. Like we we were fairly confident we're doing everything we should. So it took away from the fun a little bit and kind of more morphed into like we're not going to let these people beat us type thing. Yeah, like they're trying to intimidate you, and you're in the right. Not be spooked off. Why'd you guys set off trapping in the first place? We've always been interested in it, so we've always talked about doing it. Kind of where we decided this year to do it was they started to destroy Dan, my buddy Dan's property. I think they dropped like four trees in a couple weeks back in the fall. So that's kind of what led us, pushed us into like, yeah, let's give this a try and see what happens. Um, did did some part of you ever think, man? These people like looking at these beavers. I'll just leave these beavers alone. Yeah, yeah. We we definitely went down that road <laughs> of just is it worth it? Like we'll let the let them look at the beavers and we'll go on some public land close by and and try and get into it. Um but once the the CO, the conservation officer called us, kind of like made us want to just keep doing it out there more. Um once she'd said that, you know, we're good. We're good to be out there. Yeah, because in in a way uh, your CO has to be able to enforce the idea that it's state-owned wildlife. Yes. And you wind up, you kind of like inadvertently walked into a little bit of a territorial battle where the state claims ownership of the resource and sets the guidelines for extracting the resource. And then you have kind of like a vigilante group saying, no, this resource is in our custody. We'll set the rules for it. And then they kind of have to be like, then it almost, the beavers don't even matter. It almost becomes like this other conversation about who owns it and who makes up the rules for it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I would imagine like you're a little bit inadvertently wind up being sort of a pawn in this much larger <laughs> issue going on. I got a friend that uh, has a ranch and he was explaining to a conservation officer. He was talking about his elk, my friend saying, you know, the guys, you know, doing whatever, always spooking my elk. And he said, the warden's like, come again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. to wonder, too, like, if uh, your conservation officer is also, like, aware of state-funded mitigation efforts uh, regarding beavers in that area, too. It's like, well, yeah, be great if you guys took a few out, because every year in the spring, we have to go live trap them. And then move those live traps to another body of water where we drown the beavers, <laughs> which is not <laughs> yeah, fun exactly. for anybody. Yeah. yeah. Well, Josh, man, appreciate you coming on. Uh, it was pretty interesting to read it. So yeah. are you guys still plugging away out there? Or is it kind of like, is the smoke settled now? Oh, no, we're out there. I'm, uh, dust when I get I'm off mixing here, my metaphors. When, uh, when I get off here with you guys, I'm going to head out there and, uh, and check the traps. So they're still out there. <laughs> All right. Hey Josh, if something else happens and transpires, you know, just let let me know. Yeah, I will absolutely. Yeah. Hey, hanging on the wall behind you is that like a uh? Oh, it's like a like a alcohol drinking. Yeah, yeah. It's artwork. my fiance's. It's uh, it's her little idea, I guess. I don't know. So no, I like it, man. She's making a, she's making a bold statement about and her you her wine it. consumption. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we had uh, a duck hunting spot in high school and, and part of college in, in Missoula. And um, it was uh, 
you know, like a fanned out section of the Clark Fork, the lower Clark Fork. And we'd set up on one of these little stems of it. And every once in a while, we'd get an adjoining landowner that would come out and harass us and tell us why it was illegal to be there. Mm -hmm. And instead of dealing with it, we'd just pick up, you know, our like six half sunken decoys that we had and walk out of there. And I called a Missoula conservation officer and let him know what was going on. And the officer that I talked to was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, you're right. He's like, but how good of a spot is it? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, you know. That's almost too bad. It is, yeah. Still want to TP that guy's house. If, if you're listening, you, you still live there, you know who I'm talking about. Didn't Huey Lewis get in a big thing with spooking off duck hunters and whatnot? Remember this? That was on Mitchell Slough in the Bitterroot. And they they fixed that by baiting the slough. Um, so it was illegal to duck hunt there because there was bait present. Uh, the Mitchell Slough, the Homeowners Association there. And then, but this was on the lower Clark Fork, um, you know, at the end of Kelly Island down there. Which was like for high school kids, you know, it's like you're pretty limited as far as like you don't have a lot yeah, of stuff. You, go, yeah. you don't have... You know, it's like none of us had chest waders. It was like knee boots or hip hip boots, right? And it's like you're pretty, no boats, pretty limited. Yeah. You know, so. Hip to bees. Hey, uh, <laughs> Cal, segue us into our oil and gas deal. Spencer's not really bringing it this show. You notice that? Like, tr- tr- name me a single thing. <laughs> oh, no, the stuff about <laughs> Phil's name. Phil's name, yeah. We'll yeah, that's right, horse lover. Yeah, Spencer's that was bringing good. it. That was yeah, good, sure. but, but he didn't mean to do that. Couldn't have been more relevant. He didn't mean to do that. I just caught <laughs> that. Uh, not really bringing it, Spencer. If there's one thing somebody's going to remember from this episode, it's going to be horse lover over Montana <laughs> legislation, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, Spencer, you, he used to just, I mean, just very recently, I thought he was just an astounding personality. <laughs> That's my fault. To have on the show. Oh, this and is, now, oh, man. What is happening? Yeah. Spencer, I'm sorry. No, this is like, unfair. No rock hounding stories. <laughs> He's got time. There's an hour left yeah. in the podcast. Yeah, he yeah. can still come in with something. There's been dresser. so much good content. I don't need to interrupt it with yeah. uh, with some lower level Yeah, that might. Yeah, your sophisticated uh, hosting might be just uh, your silence. Just existing. Yes. Yeah. He's doing a good job by not talking. Yeah, it's it's restraint, and you know maybe some people in this room could you know you saw learn it. something. You know? He's not like look at me, look at me. It's yeah. not his style. Yeah, I like it. Cal, segue us into talking about um, I think the whole planet being covered up in wind farms and whatnot. Yeah, so you know recently, uh, a real interesting Republican congressman out of the state of Idaho put together a package that outlines a kind of grand scam, grand scheme, scheme. dude, dude, careful with the word choice, man. Slip, uh, grand scheme. I got to owe some people apologies on that one. Holy cow. Uh, That would remove the lower snake river dams, the four lower snake river dams, uh, on behalf largely of, of salmon is the way it's pitched. And that is a really interesting topic as we start talking about green energy and we'll be getting into that damn removal damn right oh can i tell you a quick thing that's funny <laughs> what's the name of that writer 
It is Kemi Larson. Yeah. I got a book for my kids called Beavers. What's the book called? Beavers Damn Friends. Beavers Damn Friends. Beavers. It's about uh, this beaver who's real lonely. And uh, an owl says, build a dam. Make a pond. So he makes a pond and all kinds of people start showing up. Frogs, fish, birds, whatnot. And then he's not lonely anymore. And my kids like it because the last line of the book is about, it says, now beavers got a lot of damn friends. <laughs> but, um, and there's old dad walking in with his traps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To take all Who's their this friends friend? away. <laughs> <laughs> beavers got a lot of, da- no, Benny the beavers got a lot of damn friends. Go on. So, you know, as we you know, really begin our path with this new administration. Green energy is a major topic. And were dams meant to be green energy at a time? No, because we weren't having that conversation back then. No, we really weren't. Well, I mean, very few people were having that conversation. The research that I've done, it's kind of shocking how none of these conservation ideas are, are original now. They're just really taking hold now. So there's always somebody being like, you know... If we put in, you know, if we do enough blasting with dynamite here, then all the previous world wars and build a dam, mm-hmm. that may affect upward travel of salmonids. And I'd think it would be bad. And they were like, everybody needs jobs right now. Mm-hmm. And flood control is a necessary thing. And agriculture is a necessary thing. We'll deal with the fish thing later. So people... When they were building all these giant dams and, and kind of like destroying the world's largest like salmon river, the Columbia drainage, um, people had to have been like, but what about the fish? Yes. But there's no way. I mean, obviously not. There's no way there was ever any conversation about fossil fuel, like climate issues, fossil fuels. Certainly nothing that succinct that I've ever come across. But does anybody now... Are people that have like an ulterior motive or that like dams, okay, that, that want, that, that there's got to be like pro dam people out there. Absolutely. Do the, are, are the pro, th- this is as much for Nels as it is for you. Are the pro dam, is the pro dam lobby, whatever f- form it's in, are they like, I got you. It's clean energy, bro. I haven't, we're not email burning, we're not burning oil from a, uh, an employee at Bonneville Power. Mm hmm saying there is nothing more green than hydroelectric power. Hmm. Hmm. I like it when people latch on to, not that I like, I like it when people, when there's like a, a, a argument sort of presents itself in a kind of fortuitous way. Where all of a sudden you're like, yeah, things aren't looking good for this dam. <laughs> this whole salmon thing. Yeah. And then they're like, aha, suckers. The water moves through and gives Clean us energy. energy. Right. That's it. Hit us with that, Nels. All right. Well, so yeah. there is green energy, but, you know, we oh. need to take a step back. There may, that's think, a more you know, expansive so term. Well, we should think about clean energy as maybe the better term. And then the question is, can we make clean energy green? And, you know, where we put energy, how we develop energy, even if it's clean, can have environmental impact. So hydro is probably the most clear example of what's a clean energy technology that's not exactly always green, right? Because of blocking rivers and and ending 
uh, Andromeda's fish runs like the salmon in the, in the Columbia. So, you know, what we're really interested in at the Nature Conservancy is how do we develop clean energy that really is green, that really avoids and minimizes impacts to the environment, to habitats, to wildlife, to people. Um, and so that's what we're really interested in. So Did that word uh, – did, did the word – I never till this second thought of the difference between clean energy and green energy. Did the, did the word green energy come about sort of as a way that that to 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 cause a kind of reckoning between renewable energy resources and its impact on the environment? It was like was that word made up, or was that word coined because there's this kind of friction? Well, I, I don't know that that friction really existed 10 and 20 years ago because we hadn't developed all that much clean or green energy then except for hydro. And a lot of that goes back to the 30s, right? I mean, the reason why we didn't care about the fish so much in the Columbia during the Great Depression is because people were starving. I mean, no people had no money. Uh, people had no electricity in rural areas. And so the dams that were built um, – in the Columbia were in partly, you know, a jobs creation program, an economic improvement program, and people thought that trade-off was worth making back then. And now we have a different view of that trade-off. Um, and we have a greater appreciation how profound that trade-off is, right? I mean, salmon species that have evolved, uh, that have, you know, migrated up the Columbia and the Snake Rivers to, you know, uh, spawn way up into the Rockies in Idaho are winking out. I mean, they're just, they're on the verge of being extirpated. They've been there for hundreds of thousands of years and now all of a sudden they're about to be gone. So, you know, we need to think about the consequence. There's no free lunch when it comes to energy, regardless of the energy type, clean energy included. Uh, every form of energy, with the possible exception of efficiency, is going to have some sort of impact. And we need to weigh what those impacts are uh, so that we make trade-offs that we think are acceptable. Are you familiar with the intellectual exercise of saying, um, we would never have won World War II if it wasn't for the Butte Copper Mine, right? There's one that goes. Um, we won World War II because we were able to smelt aluminum better than... Germany, because we had all those big ass dams. That it was like there's like an electricity bottleneck, and we were able to outproduce aircraft. I don't know if I'm doing this right, but I've heard this. I yeah, I haven't heard that one, but you know, I could imagine that being a legitimate argument. Yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah, how far are those, uh, you know, how how far can a dam fall? Yeah, and it's and it's sort of per public perception. But one interesting thing about the whole dam thing is, you know, it used to be the cheapest form of electricity out there. Uh, anywhere in the planet, pretty much hydro was the cheapest thing. It's not anymore. The cheapest thing in the world today is solar and wind. Uh, really? Yeah. So uh, most of the United States right now, solar and wind go for three to six cents per kilowatt hour. You know, natural gas and coal are between 5 and 17 cents per kilowatt hour. Hydro is somewhere in between. Um, so it's still pretty cheap. Hold on. Hit me, with, hit me with that again. I don't understand. Like you're saying 
That's what it costs to produce to it. To produce a kilowatt hour of But isn't energy. it more isn't haven't we made it that it's more valuable to the producer depending on how the producer is making it? Uh like they mean, sell I, it, they get it, they get an inflated rate to encourage renewables. No, I mean most energy markets in the United States are extremely competitive today. So, you know, the you know, utilities put out a call for proposals to build the next generation of of energy producing sources and you know the best packages coming in to a lot of utilities these days are wind and solar or a combination of the two usually paired with storage some storage of some type um and that's you know you know XL energy uh in Colorado, they also have uh, uh, another major territory in the Midwest. You know, most of what they've, you know, put out there has come back as wind and solar that's been the most competitive. And so uh, 80% of all new additions to the electric generating fleet last year were either wind or solar, kind hmm. of split almost in half. Solar actually outpacing wind for the first time. Um you know, and just, again, why is this happening? Well, part of it, of course, is we are concerned about climate change, but economics is really a, a huge driver of this. Solar costs have gone down 90% in a decade. 90%. So that's Thanks just to what? A, because of technological improvements, getting more and more experience with uh, deploying uh, and setting up systems. Uh, you know, if you build a coal plant, it'll take years to get the coal plant online. If you develop a wind project or a solar project, you can get that thing online after it's permitted in six months or at most a year. So it comes online much faster than than the forms of energy that it's replacing. So, that, so that's, that's one way where the, the startup costs start to even out, right? Because one argument that, that – I see over and over again, right, is like the cost of the shafts, the blades uh, of those wind turbines, um, the, you know, the, the cost of the solar farms in, um, you know, materials that, that are mined out of the earth. Uh, and then compared to what we have in, in, the superstructure that we have currently, right? And like dams, think about like a modern dam, what a modern dam would cost to build currently versus, you know, I, I believe the upgrading, um, the hydroelectric capabilities of some of these dams is also in the tune of billions of dollars to modernize them and get them where they need to be. I'm looking at a thing right here. Um, solar and wind power need 40 to 50 times more surface space than coal and gas. So solar and wind power needs around 40 to 50 times more space than coal and 90 to 100 times more space than gas. You, is it? Is yeah, that? Yeah, that's that's roughly right. Yes. So to power our whole country in um, solar, 
would mean that we have 8 million acres of solar farms. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's consistent with our estimates. Actually, does that does that intimidate you? Well, you know, how many millions of acres are there in the United States? Just even, you know, so I I don't know what that number is offhand. Hmm, that's good but question. just but just take the Bureau of Land Management, the largest land-owning public agency in the United States. You know, they have about 250 million acres. So it's a small fraction of that. The question, hmm. Steve, really is where does it go? You know, if we put... Oh, the seven, not in my backyard argument, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's the not in my backyard. But, you know, we'd like to encourage uh, up upfront planning at a landscape scale before we decide where to put this stuff. So some of the first big, really big solar projects, Ivanpah, for example, right on the Nevada-California line. I don't know if you've ever driven I-15 north mm-hmm. of L.A. on the way to Las Vegas, right? You see these towers that are several hundred feet in the air with thousands of you know solar mirrors all pointing at the top of those towers, beaming you know this sunlight so it can hit a temperature of several thousand degrees. The top. I mean, it's like a sun at the top of this tower. I mean, pilots have to fly around these things because they're so bright because of these thousands of solar rays. Um, and uh, and in fact, if birds fly through those those rays of sunlight that are concentrated going up to the tower, they're just basically vaporized. Really, but the problem with that project is where it went. It went into an area that was really important for uh, desert tortoise, which is an endangered species. And it also uh, is in an area that is important for desert bighorn sheep. So, you know, we didn't have the information we should have used at that point to figure out where that project goes. I think the point is, is that we have more than enough room across the United States of what we would call low impact places that will have minimal conflicts with habitats, wildlife, and people, that we could put this stuff. But we've got to think about it up front. And so that's what we're trying to do is help figure out where are the best places for this energy to go. So one project we have is called Mining the Sun, right? So uh, there are 43 million acres of mine lands and brown fields across the United States. Uh, EPA has a program called the Repowering Program which has inventoried these sites. And so what we're doing is trying to figure out how do we unlock these places and get renewable energy to go on those acres instead of out in what we call a greenfield situation, right? A, a natural environment in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Yeah, that's that's or, interesting, so, man. Like doing like super fun sites and quarries and stuff. Yeah, or mines. I mean, so for example, we're working in Nevada, actually with the Nevada Mining Association. We've gotten some regulations changed to encourage uh, renewable development to go on mine sites in Nevada. You know, it's the biggest like hard... old uranium mines would Well, come copper mine mines, there. silver mines, you know, they're, you know, Nevada is the biggest hard rock mining state in the country. Uh, Montana's up there. It's third or fourth maybe after Arizona. Uh, then we're also working in uh, West Virginia and there we're looking at coal fields. Um, you know, there's you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of former uh, coal fields in West Virginia that used to be mountains that were blasted off and leveled. And and now there's no economic activity going on there. There are no jobs anymore there. What about putting renewable energy there? You know, the great thing about focusing... Well, you got to have either a shitload of wind or a shitload of sun, right? 
And what happens when there's no sun and no wind? <clears throat> well, true. And that's why we need to look at the whole country in terms of where we put this stuff. I mean, the bigger the field of view we have, the more complementary we can have wind and so because it's cloudy here one day, but it's sunny, you know, 100 miles away uh, or it's windy uh, in this place now, but it's uh, calm over there. And so, you know, if we have a big enough field of view, we can integrate a lot of this stuff. And then we need other things. We need storage. Uh, we need some other energy technologies that can do some baseload. That's why keeping, for example, existing nuclear online is important. You know, about 20% of our energy today is nuclear. Is it really 20%? It's a, well, it's maybe about 18 now because a couple plants have closed in the last few years. But it's, but it's still a big chunk of our electricity generating capacity. And it's essentially carbon-free. Uh, the problem are, with are, nuclear... Are we doing any... Oh, oh, oh go ahead. You're probably going to well, get there. But I, I mean, are we doing... Is anybody eyeballing um, adding nuclear facilities online? Or is it all that they're just all destined to phase out? <clears throat> well, so uh, 1979, Three Mile Island happened. Mm -hmm. In the 40 years since then... There's been one facility added. That's at Watts Bar in Tennessee in 2016. That's the only new nuclear facility built in the United States since Three Mile Island. And there's another one that's being built in Georgia right now that's supposed to come online later this year. And those, those plants are essentially the same technology we've had for the last 60 years. Uh, there are lots of enhancements, of course, because of of concerns we've had because of Three Mile Island, Fukushima, and other things. But essentially, it's the same technology. And um, and we have about, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, somewhere around 60 existing nuclear plants across the country. Uh, most of those were built in the 1970s, so they're kind of approaching the end of their original planned lives. But, you know, I think there are ways to keep them going longer and I think utilities are doing that where they can. So I think, you know, one of, one of the, if you will, the building blocks of our clean energy future needs to be keeping existing nuclear in the fleet uh, as long as it's safe uh, and as long as it's at least reasonably economic to do so. Um, that is going to be one of many solutions that we need. Uh, there is no silver bullet. There is no one technology that's going to save us. We need to combine a lot of technologies, some of which have been around for a long time and some of which are totally new. Were you – well, I was going to ask – let me ask you a different thing first. Just to tee you up, I was going to ask you about whether you were surprised when GM made their announcement about all electric. No, not really. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Yep. Uh, so – the Biden administration, like what's their, they have a more, they put in a moratorium on new oil and gas leases on public land. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. And that's what it is? Like a moratorium on issuing new ones? It's leases. On, it's federal, not, on it's, federal lands. And yeah. The, I, my understanding is it's leases. It's not permits that have already been issued, right? So it would be new leases. Yeah. Um, do you imagine a future I'm not so much asking if you like would like to see it, but do you imagine a future where we have a lot of um, federal, federally managed public lands that are given over 
to renewable energies? Like, is that part of the mix? Yeah, it could be part of the mix. Yes. Um, Again, we have to look at what the value of those lands are. They're not all the same. I mean, Uh Bureau of Land Management, for example, you know, has extensive areas that have been degraded through different processes. Mining, of course, is, is one of those. And we think those places may be good candidates. In fact, we worked with the BLM five and six and seven years ago to create what was called the Southwest Solar Plan, where we looked across, you know, six southwestern states. We looked across BLM lands and where are the places that development of solar or wind or geothermal for that matter uh, would have relatively low impact and and the BLM designated what were called solar energy zones and they've also been called development focus areas but they're kind of zones where there would be relatively little impact to the habitat or to wildlife and that we would facilitate development there and Congress passed something called the omnibus which is kind of the funding bill to keep government going back in, I guess it was December. And part of that bill includes an energy subtitle. And within that, there's a a goal now for the federal government to develop 25 gigawatts of renewable energy on essentially BLM lands. And, you know, just a little definition here, gigawatt is a thousand megawatts. So a thousand megawatts or one gigawatt you know, used to be kind of a typical size of a power plant, a coal power plant or a nuclear power plant. Not so much anymore because those economies of scale are less important for natural gas, solar, wind, other energy technologies. But that's roughly the way you can think of it. So 25 large power plants, uh, the goal is over the next four years on, on BLM lands. Hmm. Again, you know, that would be, you know, a few hundred thousand acres out of, you know, again, 250 million. Now, we're pretty confident we can find low-impact areas that could accommodate that 25 gigawatts. Um, but, you know, we need to be thoughtful. We need to be careful about where we put it. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with, and my God have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years, you get one of these knives up and open it. It is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video and in that video you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released which is true but now for the first time they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site so right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order Montana Knife Company 
working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Nels, can we just go back for a sec uh, to what you said, Steve, with the amount of surface area of the country or, you know, eventually the the planet to be covered. So when I spoke to you before, um, you said we are between now and probably 2050, we're about 10 percent into our build out of of space and that we would you can pick up you said but a, a a footprint from the size of Maine to potentially Texas yeah so just oh that's that's essentially right Corinne um we're roughly 10 I mean maybe 15 percent into where we're gonna go with the build out which is it's inevitably going to come. You know, the question is how fast does it happen and how careful are we about? But you don't think by 2050 that the technology might ax that in half? It could. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's possible. I mean, you know, we can, we, we have to deal with the data and the information we have and make our best guesses. One of the reasons why we give a range in terms of what the spatial impact could be Maine being at the small end. Actually, Arizona is what right. we think is the high end. And that's, oh, okay. that's, that's because of different assumptions about what technologies are being deployed. So, for example, if we have a lot more rooftop solar and a lot more battery storage, that's less acres than if we have uh, more of a reliance on just utility scale with less storage. Then we have to build more solar plants. We have to build more wind plants. So that is kind of the, the more upper area. Um, and then actually Princeton released a study just a couple of months ago uh, that suggested the footprint could be as big as the size of Texas. And I think that's because they're looking at transmission. We didn't, we didn't have good enough data oh. where we felt comfortable about projecting the transmission 
uh, footprint, but it's it's you know that would be significant, and that that might you know, and just well, just you to, know, but but I, I think it's worth pointing out that um, if you look at the footprint of hydro, and you count the reservoirs, yep. So if you look at the footprint of hydro, gas, coal, that's not insignificant, right? It, it's not like you're. It, it's not like there's zero energy footprint now. No, and we're right. growing it to the size of Arizona. I don't know what the hell it is. Presumably, it's not Arizona, but it's not nothing. Yeah, I, I maybe mean, maybe it's a Rhode Island. It's it's still been large, right? I mean, if you look at mountaintop removal mining in West Virginia or the mining in the Powder River Basin, just uh, 150 miles from here, I mean, they're extensive areas. The West Virginia, yeah. Kentucky examples always uh, strike me, right? Because it's like anytime we bring up mining, anytime I bring up mining, uh, I will 100% have emails that come in that say, and all those mines have elk on them now, so how could they be a bad thing? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Hey, man, uh, we were just hunting uh, in Pennsylvania. We were just uh, flintlock deer hunting on top of. Some old mine. On top of hills that are mysteriously flat on top. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but what happened? It's kind of going up, and then all of a sudden, it's just flat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, infrastructure to like a, I always think of Coal Strip, Montana, right? Yeah. It's like, how much do you count? There's an entire railroad that goes through Coal Strip, Montana. Right. Like, but that has a lot of other services involved with it too. But the reason that it's there is for that. Coal, yeah. coal power facility. Which is right? like how many yards wide, but then real damn long. <laughs> yeah, and you, you take oil and gas infrastructure, you know, if you've ever been in the Jonah Basin in southwestern Wyoming, you can kind of appreciate this. You know, there, there are these oil and gas pads, you know, sprinkling the landscape over hundreds of thousands of acres with roads and and you know, pump stations and pipeline corridors. And, you know, it's a it's a spider web of impact, right, that makes that area a lot less uh, appreciated by mule deer and, and pronghorn. And so, for example, the Wyoming Department of Fish and Game, I think, has tracked about a 40% decline now in the, in the mule deer herd that, you know, would normally winter in that area because they just don't like human activity, you know, in concentrated forms like that. Things are more spread out, you know, they can live with it. But when you have a lot of it in one place, uh, it really starts to impact the way animals think about the habitat that's there. And just to look at the footprint, you know, so it gets, you know, it's always like peeling an onion. Uh, You know, we say these numbers like it's the size of Arizona. But not all of that impact is exactly the same. So the numbers we use for solar are about... You know, eight acres uh, are needed for every megawatt of solar. We need about 60 or 80 acres for every wind turbine that goes up, which might be three or four megawatts nameplate capacity. But there's a difference in that impact. I mean, that solar is totally covering the ground and is totally changing that habitat to something that's totally not what it was. On the other hand, a wind turbine... You know, the footprint of the turbine itself isn't very big. And so when we use that 60 to 80, we're using the spacing that's required 
between the turbines because they can't be too close to each other. They essentially have to be about a thousand feet apart. So it's the project area we're using for wind. So for some species, the fact that there's a turbine there and there's a sprinkling of turbines across the landscape, not a big deal. But if you're a bird or a bat, it could be a big deal. Um, and so, you know, there are differential impacts to uh, these, these technologies. So that's, that's another thing we have to think about and account for. You remember when everybody was kind of realizing the, the damage that cigarettes cost? And then you had tobacco companies that would really want to like obfuscate, right? What exactly was going on with tobacco, okay? To the point where it became a joke. And then you've had, historically, we've had oil companies that wanted to sort of obfuscate some of the realities around oil. Do you feel that the renewable industry is is maybe hoodwinking people a little bit? Like maybe obfuscating a little bit of what they're talking about? Or do you feel that they're trying to deal in a way that they're like, this is what it will require. This is what it will look like. Or are they a little bit ashamed? Like, are you a little bit, are, like, are you embarrassed about the numbers at all? Uh, no, I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. Uh, in terms of, you know, are companies obfuscating the reality of, of what's going to happen, uh, you know, I can't speak to the motivations of all companies. Companies have different motivations. I think some of them truly are focused on the social and environmental benefits. You know, but let's face it. I mean, companies have to make money. They have to make a profit in order to be in that business. And the interesting thing about renewables is where is the money coming from that's driving all this investment? $10 trillion is going to go into renewable energy over the next several decades, a big chunk of that money is coming from oil and gas companies because hmm. they know what's coming. You know, it's a different world they're going to have to operate in. And so they're hedging their bets and they're investing substantially in renewable energy along with lots of other folks, right? I mean, including myself. Um, so uh, it's hard to, you know, lump everybody together and say uh, they're, they're all in cahoots trying to hoodwink us. No, I mean, I think... Uh, they are, you know, if you look at the history of energy, you know, we've progressively gotten better, I would say. I mean, we, you know, we went from wood, right? I mean, we cleared New England. There wasn't a tree growing in New England by about 1830 because we had chopped everything down to burn it for charcoal, uh, or of course, clear it for farming. And, and, you we know, we saw that, where whale oil got us. Yeah, it's saw where whale oil got us. I mean, so, yeah, wood wasn't a very sustainable thing. We had to come up with something else, uh -huh. and we did, right? And that was coal. <laughs> so, yeah, coal was the next thing we did. And so, um, so we did that for a century. Uh, and then, yeah, we started to like, well, you know, there are some real problems with coal. I mean, there's arsenic, there's, there's, you know, sulfur dioxide. Remember the, Remember the acid rain thing back in the 80s? Sure, yeah. yeah. Have you ever heard about acid rain recently? No. Why, no, why don't I we mean, hear about, why don't we hear in, about, can, can you explain grad, why we don't? When I was in grad school, that was like a huge topic. That's what, you know, drove a lot of the ecological research community. And by the way, I'm a forest ecologist by training. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an energy guy, so, you know. But hold on, real quick, uh, what happened to acid rain again? Well, you know, we stopped burning coal. I mean, it's a big part of it. We use sulfur dioxide, you know, scrubbers to 
keep nitrous uh, oxide and, and sulfur dioxide out of the air, but a big part of it is, is because of the burning of coal is has been reduced over the last you know, hmm. several decades. It seemed like during the last presidency, you heard a lot about clean coal. Can you explain like what that is, what someone means when they're referring to clean coal and the reality of it? Spencer trying to get in there. See that? I love Holy that. cow. I, you know, so, <laughs> um, again, I'm a forest ecologist. I've gotten, I've been immersed in energy development for a couple of decades. I can get to that in just a moment, but, um, you know, there are ways to reduce the the various side effects of burning coal, right? I mean, things like scrubbing the air to get uh, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, arsenic, mercury. Uh, but the more you do of that, the more expensive it becomes. And one of the reasons why coal has become less and less competitive economically is the cost of dealing with those things that are in coal that are harmful to both human health and the environment. So that's where they point out, that's where they point out that regulations are killing the coal industry. Yeah. Well, because if it was just unfettered coal burning, it would be a lot cheaper than when you make certain stipulations about what you can and can't do. Correct. Yeah, it would be cheaper. It'd still be, arguably it'd still be expensive for a whole bunch of reasons, Mm -hmm. but yeah, there's no question. You know, society's made the judgment, the right one, I think. That, you know, we can't tolerate having unfettered burning of fossil fuels with no attempt to curb, you know, the really damaging side effects of burning fossil fuels. I mean, there's no, there's no question that burning fossil stuff uh, creates, a, you know, a slew of, of toxics that go into the air and go into the water and, and are, you know, a real threat to human and, and, and environmental health. But aren't we looking at um, – God, I feel like there are so many misnomers with green and clean and just no one's really telling the, the, the truth that, as you said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, who's looking into what do you do with uh, solar panels after they've run their life cycle or battery-powered cars? Maybe we're not burning, you know, fossil fuels, but what's – you know, when are, where are those, where are we going to bring those things? Where are we going to, where are they going to break down? What kind of environmental impact will they they have later on? Like we won't maybe have them in our backyard. What countries will we be disposing of them in? That's that's the thing I've been trying to introduce a conversation. I've been trying to introduce in my family is um, everything your kids go to now, anything they go to, they come home with a stainless steel water bottle. As the, but it's like we have this idea that like this, the, the salvation of the world is from like the whole point in that whole thing is that you get one and you hang on to it, but they, they become almost like disposable. And I think that like people feel better about themselves doing that, but that shit comes out of the ground, it's, man. It, but it's all nonsense. Like I miss the milkman. Like <laughs> everyone's talking about recycling. It takes a lot of energy, space. It takes a lot of processing and processes to also recycle. Oh God, I'm just. And, I'm I know just, it, I'm it, just it makes you. I don't. I think it this does. Is it all makes, a social. Political that, that's kind of what issue. I meant about the stainless steel yeah, bottle thing. Yeah. Is like, <laughs> it's like, it's hard to. It's you want to make it all super simplified. Like plastic bottles, you know, are bad. Um, 
and, and there's a lot of reasons, like with with plastic in the oceans, right? There's all kinds of reasons to be down on plastic bottles. But I don't know that the answer is that every family has 60 merch, you know, stainless steel bottles in their right. And I imagine in their cupboards, which is which is where my family went. Hey, 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 Steve, you know, I'm I'm drinking out of the same coffee thing that my brother gave me. 10 or 20 years ago now. By the way, it's got a, Congratulations. It's got a Yellowstone cutthroat there. Just, That's just awesome. to, to oh, impress you. Congratulations. Um, I try. I try to. I have this trusty cup, you'll see, that I try to use. But ooh. I do see that people are like, it's. you can fall into this thing where like, oh, no, I'm rehabilitated. I now have 80 stainless steel containers and I lose one every week. Yeah, oh, I, I but own I'm a not Tesla. Fe- but I'm not feeding into the bottle, the plastic. Well, yeah, Saving yes. the world one Tesla at a time. That's no, the biggest no load child of BS I've ever heard. Is, okay, no school event, right, has somebody distributing the stainless steel bottle, looking each child in the eyeballs <laughs> and going, this is now your drinking vessel. For the rest of your life. It can hold many things. <laughs> it is yours. Do not lose it. No. And if you Next. ask the child, do you, I want you to ask yourself, do you really need this stainless steel bottle? To which they will say, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. We live in a throwaway society, right? But seriously, I think there's going to be a lot of focus moving forward with these technologies to find ways to recycle them. For one thing, you know, you could save money just recycling batteries, for example, lithium and other rare earth metals that go into, you know, batteries that are used now by cars and your cell phone sitting on the table here are expensive, really expensive. And so if we can find ways to recycle those batteries, uh, if we can find cheaper components for those batteries, there's, you know, the, the 64 million, maybe billion dollar question is, Scalable, cheap battery storage. And, you know, there's, there's a hot technology race on around the world to find cheaper, less impact ways to develop battery storage. Mm-hmm. There's some really promising research out there that suggests we can get beyond some of the rare earths, including lithium. But we don't know. We don't have enough experience. There's, it's too early in the R&D phase. But all I can say is there is going to be a lot of focus and attention on getting cheaper and less impactful ways of developing these technologies over time. I think the same is going to be true for, you know, wind turbine blades. And, you know, one thing that's going on in the wind industry now is, you know, some of these wind turbines uh, have been out there for 20 years. You know, they were one or one and a half megawatts. Now we're doing four. So how do they repurpose those 20-year-old turbine towers and get new blades on those things that are more efficient, can generate more energy? So we don't have to go out and build another turbine and just leave that other one there, take it down, and, and, and try and dispose of it. It's like, how do we reuse? Yeah, the recycling things. cost, so, right? It's like, we want really long-lasting batteries. Yeah. we Like, that's what I want. Because it's yep. like... The cost of recycling, like it's a, the input can outweigh the output of recycling. And then it's like, what is the point? Yeah. And that's why recycling everything, every place doesn't always make sense. Like right here in Bozeman, right? You cannot recycle glass. Why is that? Because you have to take it to Spokane or Denver to get rid of it. I mean, that means putting it in a truck 
hauling it a long ways. It costs a lot of money and it uses a lot of fuel. So not a good idea. On the other hand, aluminum cans, yes. I mean, let's do that. There are places that will recycle that that are much more affordable and don't require the kind of energy that's required of glass, for example. So, yeah, I mean, we have to use our our noggins uh, when we think about these things. There's not always one solution. You know, we have to think about what the right solution is in the right place at the right time. Well, think so about you, what uh, Corinne said, right? It's like, I think of salmon and dams again, right? I know from doing a lot of my own construction that when I tear apart a house, all that lumber that's been sitting there forever, if I rip all the nails out and put that lumber back in a house or into the new addition of the house or into whatever I'm working on in the house, that is way better than me going down to the lumber yard and buying a brand new wet two by four. 100%, but who does that? I do. Uh, no, I mean, the, there's you um, and you are rare. That's, you know. But... I also know that if you want to talk about green, clean energy, a protein source that can replicate itself, move halfway around the frickin' globe, and then bring itself all the way back inland, that is renewable, that people can eat off of the entire way. Talking about salmon. If done responsibly, salmon seems pretty damn green and clean. Now... That's that, a hell of a pitch for a farmer. Be like, I got this idea. <laughs> <laughs> but that this, giant superstructure... This livestock, right? You don't even touch. Yeah. It goes out into the ocean. It comes back all fat and good. No one does shit. And then, and then we eat it. Pluck a few <laughs> off as it comes by and leave leave enough so it can keep going up. The But Where then you, you have the plan? superstructure in the middle, right? That they're, my God, the initial cost of putting that thing there. Uh, it seems that it would also be very beneficial to have that thing there in some capacity and renew it in a way that offset, that mitigates that cost somehow while still allowing this miracle of protein to flow past it both downward and upward, right? And then you look at brand new clean energy, like this, the startup cost is, is, is the hard part. Right. And it's like, just like those oil pads and, and gas pads, there's going to be a lot of roads, probably a lot of chain link fencing that does not do a lot of good things for animals either. And then we talk about the space, right? So it's like, like, how do we find our cake and eat it too? Yeah. And that's what we're all about. Uh, we need that. Let's take a step back. The reason why we think clean energy is so important is because climate change really threatens the mission that we have, which is sustaining the lands and waters that all life needs to exist. And the number one threat, habitats, wildlife, ultimately human society faces, is runaway climate change. The climate is changing at between 100 and 1,000 times faster than it has in millennia, um, eons. So we are compressing a huge amount of climate change into a very short period of time, a period of time that species and habitats will not be able to adapt to unless we slow it down. 
you know, living here in Montana, we can see it just in the last few years. You know, last year we had a record snowpack in a bunch of Western Montana. By June, when the runoff normally peaks, right? I mean, you can't go fly fishing in June in Montana. That was always, you know, when I was a kid growing up in North Dakota, we'd come out to Montana to go fly fishing because it's not very good in North Dakota. And, <laughs> and, but, you know, you wouldn't come in June because the water was always too high. But you know, when the water peaked last year, it was like the middle of May. And that's tip, that's going on across the West right now is that we are seeing the runoff. So we're getting about the same amount of snow, at least here. I mean, further South, that's not so true, but, but here in the Northern Rockies, you know, we've been doing fine on annual snowpack and maybe even a slight increase. The problem is it's running off a lot sooner. And so what does that mean? Hoot owl restrictions. When I was a kid, you never heard of anything called a hoot owl restriction. And for those of the uninitiated, that means you can't fish, you can't fly fish for trout for cold water species in the afternoon because they get stressed out because the water temperatures get up to the upper 60s, low 70s. And, you know, if you're a trout, you know, you depend on cold water because cold water has enough oxygen that you're used to, that you've evolved to. And if the water gets above a threshold, you know, some trout like Yellowstone cutthroats have a fairly low threshold in the upper 60s. You know, brown trout can tolerate into the, you know, low to mid 70s. But at some point, you reach a, a temperature where the trout just can't uh, exist. And certainly moving around and getting caught, for example, um, on one of those really warm afternoons is really stressful. And fish, you know, have been shown not to survive that stress very well. And they, it kills, you know, so they might survive that day. To live another day, you know, if they don't get stressed out because they're being caught that afternoon. So those hoot owl restrictions, I, I looked online just trying to track how many of those have been imposed in Montana and whether there's some trend. I couldn't find any data on that. But just from my own personal experience, that's been going up, right? And we have more and more days. Uh, look at fire seasons. You know, the fire season across the West has now been extended by weeks to several months, depending on where you are, even here in Montana. You know, I mean, last fall, there were wildfires, not just grass fires, but wildfires in forest settings in November and December. That's almost unheard of. I mean, these changes are happening now. Um, so the reason why we're so motivated uh, to advocate for clean energy is because of that underlying problem. Do you foresee that your organization, the Nature Conservancy, uh, will you guys turn Nature Conservancy lands over to renewable energy production? Uh, no. Uh, with possibly some exceptions, we own, for example, agricultural lands that are a buffer around a preserve that we might own. And, you know, it might actually be better to have solar panels there than having a farmer grow corn there, right? I mean, growing corn causes some erosion. You know, they might be using pesticides that might be a problem for insects or birds or whatever. So maybe solar is a better use of that. But it would be an extremely limited circumstance. And in fact, actually, we're looking, we own two and a half million acres across the United States. So it's, it's conceivable that we would have some places that might be 
what we would call low impact for renewable energy. But but generally, no, your but lands no. are not your lands are not the kind of compromised landscapes that no, you would look I mean, toward I, converting. I, you know, a lot of our lands are really the ecological gems that are out there, right? I mean, we, we need a them. denatured conservancy. Yeah, so we have about fourteen hundred <laughs> preserves across the United States. By the way, you can hunt and fish on over a million acres. And of those. we have, yeah, you and probably we have. have, yeah. I mean, here here are a couple of examples. One is a uh, the big two hearted preserve in Michigan. You know where. Uh, the Nick Adams stories by Ernest Hemingway are set. You know, we own a preserve there and you can go fly fishing right there where, you know, Hemingway at one point fly fishing. And then we have some place called the Silver Creek Preserve in Idaho, which actually was the last place that Hemingway lived and unfortunately committed suicide. But uh, you could go fly fishing or duck hunting there. And uh, so anyway, so we, yeah, we own about a million and a half acres. I mean, two and a half million acres um, we've acquired another 15 or 16 million acres nationwide that we've transferred to state and federal agencies. The vast majority of that's open to hunting and fishing too. So, Oh, is that right? So, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of those lands went to state, you know, wildlife management areas or they went to the U.S. Forest Service or they went to the... Fish and Wildlife Service or the Bureau of Land Management. So. Yeah, somehow I didn't know that. I didn't know that you guys yeah. did land transfers that, yeah. that put land into public estate. Yeah, I mean, we we tr- most of the land we acquire ultimately ends up residing with a public agency. Huh. And managed you know for open access. Did you know that about the Nature Conservancy? To be honest. No, I wasn't. I wasn't hip on the on the. I, I know of some some cases, but I didn't know that that was. Um, I guess a pillar of the so you, hold, so you hold two and a half million, but you guys have transferred somewhere around 15 million acres. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Wow. I probably spent more time on nature conservancy land than I thought. Maybe. Um, but by the way, before you go charging into a nature conservancy preserve with your oh, yeah, rifle, yeah, yeah. Uh, Check do it out. contact the program <laughs> ahead of time to make sure it's, yeah. you know, because uh, some places are really sensitive and, you know, there's species there that are sensitive that, you know, make it hard for us to have public access to those places. So there in Michigan, we found we were hiking one time on a nature conservancy property and found a bunch of spawn and bluegills on a pond. Got a little nervous about it and did some checking around. This is up by Traverse City. Did some okay, checking cool. around and turned out that we were allowed to go fish those bluegills. All right, cool. And we did. But we checked uh, first. With, with a fly rod? No. With a net? No. <laughs> Hook and worm, man. Okay. Oh, that would uh, be the, the Ranella way. Yeah, yeah, we threw a uh, gill net out there. No, we were one inch. Here's why. Here's why we got to thinking you couldn't. We thought you couldn't because no one was. And it'd be uh, like, how could it be that all these bluegills are in here, like spawning in plain sight, and no one's angling for them? It must be that you're not allowed to. But it's just that everybody else made the same mistake we made, assuming that you couldn't. Yeah, well, always check with your local nature conservancy uh, program. Yeah, we did, and it was cool. Okay, what else? G- give us a final. Give us a final thing, man. Like, let's do this. Oh, I wanted to ask you this too. The thing I mentioned, GM. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cars. When they said, "Okay," everybody acted like it was all over the news, but I didn't think that it felt that ambitious. What was the year? Twenty fifth, thirty five, fifty. Yeah, I think it's like 35 or something like that. And they're, you know, they're not the only car company making that commitment. I mean, 
uh, Volvo, Toyota, I, I think Ford as well. You know, they've all made commitments to essentially completely replace internal combustion engines with electric or other non-fossil fuel-based technologies, you know, sometime in the next two decades. And the reason it doesn't surprise me is uh, twofold. One is the, the economics of it are getting better and better. So, you know, it used to be the only electric car you get out there was a Tesla that cost you a hundred grand. Uh, now you can get cars that are 35 grand, 30 grand. Um, and when, you know, obviously if you have a federal tax credit, that makes it even more attractive. So you're getting to the point where those vehicles are starting to be competitive. You're also are getting batteries that enable you to power most kinds of vehicles. You know, it used to be, you know, it just cars, sedans, um, that would, uh, be manufactured as electric vehicles. Now we have a whole set of, you know, pickups and SUVs that are going to be coming out that are electric powered. And they have, and here's the second reason, they have some real advantages over our conventional internal combustion engine cars in the following sense. They almost require no maintenance, you know, very little maintenance in contrast to internal combustion. You don't have to change the oil. Um, you may have gear trains that are much simpler. You actually have an, a, a motor that's in each wheel. You don't have you know, a transmission system with linkages and things that actually make the engine less efficient in delivering power to the wheels. You actually have an electric engine or motor with each wheel. Uh, you have that kind of less cost of ownership over time. So that makes them uh, more affordable. And I think where you're going to see the biggest progress with electric vehicles before they become more widespread with the public is with fleets, right? So fleet uh, company, companies that have large fleets, let's say FedEx or UPS, for example. Yeah, they have all these trucks and vehicles that are out there making deliveries every day. They typically are out there for 200 miles or something or less every day. And they require a lot of maintenance for all those vehicles all the time because it's stop and start driving, which is hard on internal combustion vehicles. And so there's a lot of maintenance required. So the idea of having an electric vehicle that, you know, has dramatically less maintenance means you have a much lower cost, again, of ownership of that fleet. And so that could be very attractive to a fleet owner. So that's where you're going to see, I think, a lot of these technologies really get further refined. And then we're going to see it proliferating more and more into the public space. Where people who are motivated by something beyond carbon footprint are going electric just because it makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is today. But increasingly, I'd, I'd predict in the next five to ten years, you know, the the – de facto car people are going to be buying is going to be electric because mm. it's it's the same price as an internal combustion and it doesn't have all the maintenance problems. And I was uh, I was in a nice one recently and my God, the acceleration. It's awesome. Through the, like, put your eyeballs in the back of your head. What were, what were you It made in? my daughter very nervous. Yeah, I mean, these cars typically can go <laughs> zero to... I was in a, like a souped up Tesla. Huh. But and even, it's like, I, I it, it's unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my I mean, daughter thought we were doing something wrong. 
the, the 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 rate at which we got to the speed limit made her feel that there was like that we were going to get a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. Oh, anyways, twenty thirty five. So GM will sell only zero emission vehicles by twenty thirty five. Um. Yeah, I I mean I I, I, I guess think that, I don't know, that man. Could Is that like that could happen? That's what I was trying to figure out. I was like, are they? Here's what I was trying to figure out, and I haven't read enough about it. When GM made that announcement, was one day some guy saying, huh, you know, at the rate we're going and the way the markets are, I bet you by 2035, this will be the truth. Or did some guy say, like, let's push for this goal, and the engineers are like, can't be done. And then they're like, by God, we can do it. We put a man on the moon. Like, I'd love to know, like, (laughs) how the conversation went. If it was more like, it's just where everything's headed, it's not a big deal, we'd land there anyway, but let's make a press release. Hey, I wasn't in the GM boardroom when they made that decision, <laughs> but you know, I'm sure there were conversations about that, and I think it was both, what's the competitive future? You know, who are we competing against? Because you know, before GM, there were other major manufacturing making that commitment. But I think it was also just a recognition that the technologies are improving. They can start to envision the scalability of it, the affordability of it, and it becomes more and more clear that, yeah, that is the way to go. Um, Mm -hmm. What's interesting is, you know, during the last administration, the administration, you know, really wanted to try and roll back the clean energy standards for cars, for vehicles in California, right? The CAFE standards. And actually, a lot of the vehicle manufacturers said, no, no, don't do that. We're actually on track to you know, to meet those standards and exceed them. In fact, we think that's a good thing competitively for us to be able to do that because we're going to be competing with cars from Japan and from China and from Europe where they are doing that stuff. And if we're not doing that stuff, we're going to be caught uncompetitive, at least with the rest of the world. So we need to keep up with the competition. As we record this, there's blackouts happening across Texas and the Dakotas. How would things be better or worse if we relied more on renewable energy? I think actually it'd be better. Uh, And I'll tell you why. Um, So first of all, let's recognize what's driving the blackouts now. It isn't simply that, you know, wind turbines are iced up and can't move. I mean, here in Montana, Wyoming, Iowa, Minnesota, you know, we have wind turbines, you know, m- many, many thousands of them, no problem in the wintertime. And that's because we, they're winterized and they're, you know, they're, they're prepared to deal with that kind of climate. In Texas, they're not. And in fact, in Texas, natural gas plants and coal plants and nuclear plants aren't either. And those shut down way more than wind did, according to ERCOT, the report I heard yesterday. And so, you know, natural gas lines are freezing going into plants. Coal piles are frozen so hard they can't get the coal moved to put it on the conveyor belt to take it into the plant. Hmm. And water cooling systems at nuclear plants are frozen because, again, they're not insulated, they're not winterized, they're not used to those kind of temperatures. The other reason why Texas is experiencing the energy blackouts that it's seeing currently is because they have a grid that's unto themselves. It's, you know, that. Uh, the energy reliability uh, system, ERCOT, it's called, that's a grid manager, and it's only Texas. It does not connect to the rest of the country. If they had a grid system that actually were better interconnected, 
uh, there would be energy from other parts of the company that come the country that could come into Texas. You're getting into some replace. Alamo stuff here, man. Yeah, yeah, no, I know that. <laughs> I, yeah, I know there's this, there's you know pride of independence and ownership, but yeah. ultimately that like, is going to. Davy Crockett gave up, <laughs> but actually he surrendered. We're going to be better off as a country building out renewables and increasing grid connectivity so we can move energy around more easily around the country so that we can get stuff to where it needs to go when it makes sense. Again, this goes back to it's cloudy sometimes, it's dark every day. Um, so we need to have a mix of energy in a lot of places, all interconnected, and they can flow around the country to where it's most needed. That's going to be part of the renewable energy solution. That will actually help us when we have things that can drive blackouts like these big energy or these big climate impacts like we're seeing in Texas today with the cold weather or like we saw in California last year with all the heat and the fires, which, by the way, it wasn't solar projects that couldn't generate energy it was forest fires burning transmission lines that actually were set by transmission lines arcing um, and a big part of why the California system experienced so many problems last year uh, was because of transmission lines. But it, you you haven't heard that conspiracy that it's um, Israeli lasers? <laughs> you got to get... I yeah, believe you got your hip to the news, man. Jewish lasers. <laughs> it's Israeli yeah. lasers. That's not. I mean, let's make sure we're accurate. L'chaim. Uh, <laughs> isn't isn't that though mining for a lot more copper and digging up a lot more ground to put all that connectivity in there? Yeah, like Straight I said. Trade off, screen. I'm just so depressed. No, no, no. But well, <laughs> there's no easy way out no of this, No free man. lunch, Corinne. You just there's no, 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 no palatable way out of this. I think the moral of the story is be more like, be more conscientious like Cal and live like Buck Bowden in the middle of uh, yeah. nowhere in Alaska. Yell at your kids when they leave Seriously. their closet light on. What is this going to do <laughs> to the trade-in value of my Toyota Tundra? <laughs> I mean, I'm about about the time GM's making that switch is about the time we'll be looking for a new rig. You'll have so. it paid off. <laughs> Cal, trade it in fast. Oh. No, I mean, it'd still be good for a while. <laughs> All right. Uh, how, okay, how do people go? Let's say they wanted to go uh, read up on this. Do you guys have, um, do you have the sort of policy stance or... Like, a, where do people go? They're like, man, I need to find out, or I need to refute this guy, or whatever they want to do. Yeah, I'll, I'll provide Corinne some links that you can load up so that any reader, any of the listeners out there can follow up and learn more about some of the solutions that we're working on. And, um, you know, I talked about the mining of the sun. Another one that we're l working on is, is, you know, what about marginal agricultural lands? You know, what role could they play? And one farmer's marginal is another farmer's, you know, best place. But, yeah. you know, for example, you know, we irrigate a lot of land in the West for alfalfa, you know, and some of that land is really poor productivity and the water is extremely valuable for lots of things besides a low value crop like alfalfa. Maybe, you know, maybe we should put solar there instead of alfalfa. And the fish benefit, people benefit, um, the rancher gets more money. The landowner might make more money. They might make more money. Uh, you know, we have a place where we're not going to fight over, you know, something going on the ground there because, uh, 
you know. That's see so now that's, you're so those are the solutions that's, that we that's wanna, a, I like that kind of thinking yeah, there, so, man. Like yeah, where so the dude, like a guy's already doing it. He's using water. He walks away. I don't know if this is true or not. He walks away with more money. Yeah, I mean, you less know, water gets used. We think that there are win-win situations out there, and we think there's a lot of them actually. Hmm. Let's figure out where they are and how we unlock those places. Let's do that. So we can spend less time fighting over it and more time hunting and fishing in the places that we love to go. This alfalfa deal, you better talk to Mark Kenyon because he probably likes those he likes those alfalfa fields. Hunting them white tailed deer. Hey, I'm not saying get rid of all of them, right? I mean, we still <laughs> need alfalfa out there. I don't, you know, Mark Kenyon's gonna be an anti renewable crusader once you start talking <laughs> about ruining all of his alfalfa fields. All right, uh Nels Johnson, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Steve. The North American Energy Program Director at the Nature Conservancy. And if you, even if you don't realize it, you have probably been on some of their properties. I know I have. I sure have. Killed an elk on one. Oh. Yeah, Oregon. Well, I'll, I'd like to point out too, Cal, that you got a seek a deer on one. Oh, I did get a seek a deer on one, yes. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate you coming on. As things shake out, hopefully we'll have you back to explain where we're at in the future. All right. Adios. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping.